Well, good morning. How are we? We good? All right. It is good to see you. If we have not met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, excited to get into First John with you this morning as we continue our Community on Mission series. But before we get to that, uh, a couple important announcements. So uh, first of all, we're all aware of just the devastating fires that are happening in California right now, what's happened in Southern California and what's ongoing in, uh, in Paradise. I think I read this morning in the news, the death tolls up to 76 with just a whole bunch more missing. Just, just awful, awful, awful uh, what's happening. It's tragic in every sense of the word. And as this has gone on, we've gotten a lot of questions as a church. Just people want to know, hey, how can I help? Or people want to know, uh, hey, what's Bridgeway doing to, to help with what's going on? And then, and then how, can, how can I be a part of that? We're getting a lot of questions like that. So I just want to take a minute to talk about our kind of philosophy in terms of how we want to approach disaster relief in general, and then what specifically we're doing in this situation and how you can be a part of it. Um, when a disaster takes place and it's, and it's local or it's in a situation where we feel like we're equipped to respond, uh, we very simply want to gather as many resources as we can and then deploy them as effectively as we can. And we want to do the work to find out what are the real needs that, are, that, are, that people actually have so that we can give in a manner that actually helps. And this is very important because you can go, go home after service today and Google the term second disaster, and you will find out that in the disaster relief community, they refer to the influx of good-hearted but useless donations they receive. As the second disaster, I was just chatting with one of our pastors in the lobby who's, who, who said he has a, a friend who's telling him, uh, up north, there is so much stuff right now that cannot be used, it's only going to go to the dump. There's just too, there's just too much. Listen, if you know someone personally and they need clothes, by all means, buy them clothes. But we're not taking items to bring up there. But what we're hearing from the, our contacts with the American Red Cross in different places is what is needed is money and gift cards. What's needed is money and gift cards. So what we're going to do this weekend is we're going to collect money because ultimately what those who have lost everything are going to need is they're going to need some financial assistance as they begin to put their lives back together. And we want to be able to help with that. So what we're going to do this weekend is we're going to collect money. We're going we're to take sort of a second offering that's, that's on your way out the door. And what you can do is you can give... And here's what we're going to do with the money. We're going to do one of two things. Number one is we want to be able to provide direct assistance to those in the Bridgeway community who have loved ones who have lost everything. We know some of you who have lost everything, you're here with us this morning, and, and thank you for being with us. We want to be able to help those because we know a lot of you know different, different ones who are close to you who have, who have lost everything. We want to be able to help. And then secondly, we want to be able to set up a system whereby we're able to provide some long-term support. Because... In the days to come, this fire is going to be extinguished, and may that day come quickly. And this is going to fade from the headlines, because we're going to move on in our attention to the next crisis, right? That's just, it's not wrong, that's just how life works. But for those who have lost everything, that process is going to be long-term. So we as a church want to be able to, to, to raise money financially so that we're able to provide some long-term 
assistance. So that's our plan. So here's how you can give. I already mentioned on your way out the door today, uh, there will be our, our ushers and greeters will be at the doors and you can give that way via cash or check. And, and be sure to write the word fire relief uh, in the memo line of your check. Uh, you can also go, if you want to throw up that slide, you can go to bridgeway.church forward slash fire relief to give online. Or even right now, you can text the word relief BCC to 77977. And 100% of what you give is going to go towards helping uh, victims of these fires. And we want to be able to provide some long-term care. Please don't feel any obligation to give, by the way. But, but just want to encourage you, as you are able to either give here or give through some other organization, to just try to do something that is, that, that, that is kind of appropriate with your means to be able to help. So, so that's our encouragement to you. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. It is on page 1023 in the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. We are continuing our series, Community on Mission, through the book of 1 John. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of 1 John, it is a letter that was written by John, one of Jesus' disciples, And at the time of its writing, John was quite advanced in age, and he, with a pastoral heart, was writing to different churches throughout Asia Minor to encourage them and to instruct them and to bless them. That's sort of the context of 1 John. And something I said several weeks ago when I was teaching as part of this series was that the book of 1 John, a lot of the concepts we're going to find are simple, but they're not shallow. That they are easy to comprehend intellectually. Like they're not like, what does that mean? I don't know. Like it's pretty straightforward. But actually taking these concepts and applying them is a different matter altogether. They can be very challenging to apply practically. As we look at our passage today, it is 15 verses. And in those 15 verses, the word love is found 26 times. The title of the passage in my Bible, and I'm pretty sure in the Pew Bibles as well, is God is Love. It is not ambiguous what this passage is about, right? And even if you have no experience with Christianity whatsoever, even if this is the first time you've ever even been to church, chances are you are aware of the fact that there is some connection between Christianity and love, right? Like, none of us are going to leave today going, oh my gosh, God loves us and wants us to love others. What am I going to do with this totally new information? Right? Like, we all know that. It's simple, but it's not shallow. It's simple, and yet if we're honest, most of us struggle to actually live that out. I mean, we know on some level that God loves us and that we in turn are supposed to love one another. But how do we do that amidst the stresses and challenges of life? Uh, We're told all the time, we gotta love one another, we gotta love one another, but, but what does it look like to get the tools we need to be an authentically loving presence everywhere that we go? It's a totally different situation. Now one of the challenges and drawbacks of spending a whole week thinking about love and studying love and getting prepared to talk about love is I've had to sort of come to grips with how unloving I can be. Right? Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not a jerk. And I say pretty sure because no one thinks they're a jerk and yet, you know, you live in the real world. I don't need to explain that further, right? (laughs) But like, I'm not actively hostile to people. But I sure can be selfish, 
right? Like, and I'm not fake. Like, the same person you see here is the same person I am in the rest of my life. I'm not fake. I have nothing to hide. But I sure can be naive to the needs of others because I get, because I get so wrapped up in my own stuff. I know intellectually that God invites me to love others, and yet I struggle to actually do it. And my sense is, if we're honest, my guess is if we're honest, most of us can relate to that sentiment. Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. But the good news for us is that God loves us even as we struggle to love others. And the gracious invitation of God is to allow him to continue to transform us, because we're all in process. Continue to transform us so that we can love others others authentically and joyfully authentically and joyfully and what i want us to do with our text today is i'm going to read the whole passage just in one shot it's it's a long passage and after we read it we're going to go back and we're going to talk about some of the key concepts and my hope is is that instead of just being this being a time where we sort of talk about things we already know lo- god loves us let's love others my hope is once again that through our discussion of this passage, we can gain some tools that will help us actually be an authentically loving presence wherever God takes us. So with that, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected by love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's God's word. Love one another, John says. Why? Because God is love. If you're following along in your bulletin or in the the church app, here is your fill in the blank. It's this. Loving others starts with being loved. Loving others starts with being loved. 
So, so here's how we're going to approach this. Instead of going back through this passage and, and picking it apart, there is simply too much there for the time that we have. Here's what I want to do. I have two broad points I want to make. And in making these two broad points, we're going to kind of jump around through the passage. If you're a very like linear A to B sort of person, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're going to get through this together, all right? So the first point I want to draw our attention to is the fact of God's love. The fact of God's love. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about God. I, I was reading a book earlier this week, and the author had this brilliant quote where he said, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Right? That you and I, we think we're sort of looking at the world objectively, and it's just everybody else who's messed up, right? But everything we see, we're filtering through our own life experiences and biases and culture and everything else. So that means for some of us, because of maybe our disposition or because of our life experience or things that have happened, you might struggle with the idea that God is love. But I need you to understand on the authority of the word of God that that is indeed what God is. That God is infinite, inexhaustible love. God is love. And he extends his perfect love to us. See what love the Father has lavished upon us, 1 John 3 says, that we should become children of God. God is not merely loving as if his behavior conforms to some other standard of love. But God is himself love. Love comes from God the way that light comes from the sun. It is in God's nature to be loving. And the love of God, translated agape in Greek, it is self-sacrificial love that is mindful of the needs of another. Because it's possible to sacrifice yourself in such a way that we are not mindful of the needs of others, right? Maybe some of us have had other people sacrifice for us and we're left saying, yeah, you really shouldn't have, right? But God's love is self-sacrificial love that keeps in mind the needs of the other. All that God does is motivated by love. God calls us his children because of his love. God exposes our sin because of his love. God invites us to repentance because of his love. God leads us in paths of righteousness, as Psalm 23 says, because of his love. Everything God does, God disciplines us because of his love. Everything he does is because of his love. So what does that mean for you and, and for me? It means we're already loved. It means we are already loved. And the implications of that are, are wide-ranging, but let me just give you one. I think most of us would admit, if we're even a little bit self-aware, that pretty much all of us are pretty good at messing up our own lives. Right? Like stuff happens to us from the outside that's not really our fault or seemingly random or whatever. But if we're real honest, like we're pretty good at making things worse, right? Like I know that's true for me. Like our arrogance or our, our pride or our, our, our lack of self-awareness, our, our selfishness, our insecurity, all of those things get us into trouble. Imagine the difference it would make if you understood and you really believed that God has given you all of the validation you need. Imagine if you understood and really believed that God has given you all the validation you need so you don't need to go out into the world and seek it. So you don't need to crave attention. 
Because whatever you can get from another person pales in comparison to the love of God. I'll be honest, I know that intellectually. But I struggle to believe it practically as much as anybody else. But imagine if we did believe that practically. I mean, think about how much just what goes on in the world and just workplaces and other things, like how much just posturing there is, right? We're trying to sort of prove ourselves, and a lot of times we're trying to prove ourselves to try to act like we're something we're not. Think about how much less posturing there would be if we knew that we were loved. Think about how much less time and energy we would spend desperately seeking attention from others, and instead how much time and energy we could invest in building others up. Think about how much more peaceful we would be. I mean, think about, gosh, just how much less time we would waste being offended and how, how, how less insecure we would be. We, we have the attention and the affection of the one whose opinion matters most. And that means we can live with a settledness that comes from knowing we, were, we are loved. I love this quote from the ancient mystic St. John of the Cross. He says this. He says, love what God sees in you. Love what God sees in you. You might not always see something in yourself worth loving. I certainly have my moments where I struggle to see that. But God always sees something worth loving in you. So love what God sees in you. Because when we begin to accept that God loves us in our brokenness, we can begin to love ourselves in our brokenness, and then we can be equipped and prepared to show that love to others, to show that love for others. And how can we know that God is love? Are we merely to take him at his word? According to the passage, no, we are not. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, the text says. In other words, in this, the love of, the love of God was made plain for all to see that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How are you to know that God loves you? How are we as a community to know that God loves us? We know that is true because God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. If you were here several weeks ago, we talked about this weird word, propitiation, because it appears earlier in 1 John. And it's a weird word, we said that, but, but what it basically means is a propitiation is something that turns wrath into favor. And we said that God has real, holy, righteous, and just wrath towards sin. But when Jesus went to the cross, he absorbed all of God's wrath so that all that is left for us is favor. Jesus is our propitiation. The, the proof of God's love is seen at the cross. Don't look to anything else in your life to be the proof of God's love for you. By all means, when things are going well, thank and praise God for his good gifts. Thank him for your circumstances. Thank him for your relationships. Thank, you th th thank him that you have a job that you enjoy. Thank him for all of those things. But don't let any of those things be the, pr be the proof of God's love for you because all of that is unstable. But God's love displayed in the cross is not. God's love displayed in the cross is not. God who is love, whose very nature is to sacrificially love us, most displays his love in the cross. So when you look around the world or you look around at your life and it is causing you to doubt God's love, look to the cross. 
When you are feeling insecure, look to the cross. When, when, when you don't know if God could ever accept you, look to the cross and know that he can. The passage points us to the fact of God's Love And it is love that God lavishes upon us, not because we deserve it. And that is good news, because if you didn't deserve it in the first place, you cannot lose it. God gives us his love because he himself is love. So that's my first point, the fact of God's love. And then broadly speaking, my second point is I want to draw our attention to the fruit of of God's love. In other words, what does God's love produce in us? As we receive God's love, what effect does that have in the way that we live in the world? And this passage gives us some insight into how we can allow God's love for us turn us into, authentic, turn us into an authentically loving presence in the world. Verse 7. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Okay, John is not mincing words here, right? What is he saying? He's saying that we can have all of our theological facts memorized and we can be Bible quiz world champions and we can have all of our doctrine right in a row, but if we don't love others, we have missed the point of all of that doctrine and all of that knowledge. If we say we are a believer and yet our life is still about ourselves, we have missed the point. We can be right about everything and miss the point. I'm reminded of a favorite quote from one of my favorite authors, the late Dallas Willard, and this is a quote that I try to keep close to me, in my, at least in my best days, in, in life and in leadership, where he says, the hardest thing in the world is to be right and not hurt people with it. The hardest thing in the world is to be right and not hurt people with it. Or another way I like to express that sentiment is, it is not enough to be right, we also must be kind. That factual or doctrinal correctness is not an excuse for a lack of kindness. Right? And the verse that I read a moment ago reminds us that we can be factually and doctrinally correct in our thinking. And don't get me wrong, that is important. But if we're not loving others, once again, we have missed the point of all of those facts and all of that doctrine. Right, And to be clear, this is not a verse about salvation, but it is a verse about missing the point of God's love for us. The last verse in our passage says, if we're going to love God, we must love each other. And why does he say that? Because it's real easy to fool people into thinking we love God more than we actually do. It's real easy to fool people with superficial stuff, right? Wow, look at the, look at the, they've got their hands raised and look how passionate they are in worship, right? Or wow, look at that, they've signed up for 47 Bible studies this semester and they're leading 18 of them. Wow, and they're serving, I don't even know how, they're at the church serving every day. Or wow, he's a pastor, he must really love God a lot. And listen, to be clear, I'm not saying that stuff's not legit. I'm just saying we can all fake it. It is real easy to fake our love for God. It is a lot harder to fake our love for others because we're pretty good at sniffing each other out. We can get away with being fake for a while, but eventually what's real is found out, right? And God says through his word, the way I know your love for me is legit is if your love for others is legit. If you're faking it with other people, if you're using them for stuff, if you're manipulating them, you've missed it. You've missed the point. You've missed 
the point. When we love others, it shows that we're God's children. We've received love from him, and so we can pass it on. And and when we fail to do that, it just shows we don't get it. It just shows we have failed to truly be transformed by the message of the gospel. We have not let it become the dominant narrative that shapes our behavior. Think about it this way. Our lives are the product of our influences. I hope you realize that. Because it's true whether you realize it or not. Our lives are the product of our influences. Different speakers and business people have said things like, uh, we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Right? Or my pastor in college used to say, show me the people you hang out with and the books you read, and I will tell you who you will be in ten years. And I don't know of like scientific studies that have tried to prove that or, or how you would even go about proving that. But I don't know about you, I can just see overwhelming anecdotal evidence that there is some truth to that, right? That you and I are affected by our influences. And listen, if the dominant influence in your life is angry and cynical, guess what you're going to be? Happy and loving. No. You can see the dominant influences in my life are clearly very sarcastic, right? But if the dominant, this is a serious point, if the dominant influences in your life are angry and cynical, and there's a lot of money to be made in the world today, by the way, being angry and cynical, guess what? You're going to be angry and cynical. If the dominant narratives in your life, those dominant voices, are bitter, you're going to be bitter. If the dominant voices in your life are stuck in the past, guess where you're going to be living? In the past, right? But, if the dominant influence is your, in your life is the one who says, I love you, before you could ever lift a finger, I love you, then you're going to be equipped to be a loving presence wherever God takes you. And if you surround yourself with people who point you back to God's love, if you surround yourself with people who are pointing you back to the gospel, I'm not saying we don't have friends you know, outside of church, but we need that, of course, But if we're surrounding ourselves with people and the dominant narrative in their life is that God loves them, then we start to form community and we can engage in God's mission and we can be a loving presence out into the world. I I love the way that John talks about this in verse 12. I want to start reading in verse 11 to kind of get the full thought, but here's what it says. He says, Beloved, if God has loved us, so we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When we love one another, his love has been perfected in us. I love that word perfected. What what, what does that mean? It means that when we love one another, God's love for us has done what it is designed to do. This idea of perfected is completion or accomplishing its purpose. Let me give you a very silly analogy to kind of bring this home a little bit, hopefully. Imagine you are baking brownies. Always a good decision. And you put them in the oven, and they're doing their thing. And if you've ever baked brownies before, you know that one of the ways you can tell if your brownies are done is you pull them out of the oven, and you stick a toothpick right in the middle. And if you pull that toothpick out, and it is chocolatey, you lick it immediately, first of all. And second... You put it back in the oven. Why? Because the oven's purpose for those brownies has not yet been perfected. Right? But if it comes out clean, it's time for dessert. Right? 
So what are we to do when we see ourselves acting in an unloving manner towards others? Which, first of all, let's just be honest, very few of us are self-aware enough to notice this in the moment. Very few of us have the ability to realize, I'm being unloving right now, I need to stop, right? But we notice it, if you're anything like me, you notice it, you look back on your day and you're like, oh, I was not very nice there. Or, oh, I had this opportunity to just bless somebody and I didn't take it, right? What do we do when we see that? We need not give in to denial or to excuse-making or self-loathing. Instead, we can understand that what that means is just God's love has not yet been perfected in us. That we need more time. And I realize it's weird when we make that an oven, but we need more time under the formative influence of God's love and grace so that we might better represent his love out into the world. We need to abide with him more closely so that his influence can grow over our hearts and minds. And when that happens, we can, we can confess without fear of condemnation and we can receive his grace. And, and now here's where my silly brownie analogy breaks down a little bit is, is brownies are done in, I don't know, half an hour or less, but we're never done sitting under the formative influence of God's love. And remember what it says at the end of the passage. We love because he first loves, loved us. It does not say we love because people deserve it. If that is your standard, you will be very unloving. Right? It does not say we love because that is the morally right thing to do. It does, he does not say we love because we want to appear to others to be a loving person. No. The fuel for our love for others is God's love for us. We love because he first loves us. So when I am confronted with how unloving I can be, I can allow that to be something that redirects my attention back to God's love for me. And you can do the same. Because to understand how we bear the fruit of God's love, we need to zero in on another word that's found throughout this passage. We said the word love is found 26 times. Well, there's a small little section in the middle where we see this word abide about a half dozen times in the course of a few verses. And, and that's, I don't know, that's just not a word we use a whole lot today. Like, I don't text my wife, like, I'm going to abide at the office for another half an hour and then I'll be home. Like, that'd be weird, right? But it's a word that we see throughout the New Testament. It just means to remain or to stay. J- Jesus tells us, abide in his love. And John here says that whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what does that all mean? In the repeated use of this word abide, there is both a promise and an invitation. The promise is in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is with you. More than that, in the verses before, John writes about the promise of the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christ follower, the Spirit of the living God lives in you. He abides in you. He remains in you. He will neither leave you nor forsake you. There is so much in our world that is unreliable. But God's promise to fill us with his Spirit, that is endlessly reliable. So that's the promise, that that God is, as we we pay attention to him, he is with us us in all things. And then the invitation is to live a life where not only is God abiding in us, but we are abiding with him. And in my opinion, abiding in God is largely a matter of consciousness. Now don't worry, I'm not going to get all like weird and Eastern on you here. 
But abiding in God means we are conscious of his presence and his love. We are conscious that God is present and at work in a specific moment. Because he, I mean, and listen, he loves us and is present with us whether we acknowledge it or not. But there is something, at least in me, that changes when I am cognizant, when I am conscious of the reality of God's presence in a particular moment. Right? To abide, to abide in God means we're consciously aware of his presence. And you just think about it, this is at least for me, again, what happens when we're consciously aware of God's presence with us? I think anxiety starts to settle down, right? I think anger mellows out. I think, I think bitterness and hatred and, and selfishness are all driven out by the light of God's love as we fill our mind with the reality of the Spirit's presence in us and the reality of God's image in others. Abiding is about paying attention. If you don't like the word consciousness, say pay attention. Paying attention and being, being aware of God's presence with us. Because as I stated a moment ago, our lives are the product of our influences. And again, imagine if the greatest influence in your life was the voice of your heavenly father telling you that you are loved and you're enough. Before you could do anything else, you're loved and you're enough. What if, what if you faced every day with that thought in your mind. Because listen, if, if we're going to love others, loving others starts with being loved. So, so then how do we do that practically? How do we do that practically? We've talked about loving others in sort of very vague terms. And we talk about love a lot here at Bridgeway. One of our core values is loving generously, joyfully demonstrating God's abundant love. So how are you to live this out practically? Well, well I don't know. There are a thousand ways you can live this out practically. And I, and I think it would, it, it would make sense for each one of us to spend some time with God to say, God, in light of my situation in life, in light of the relationships I have, in light of the job you've given me, and in light of everything going on in my life, what does it look like for me to allow your love for me to bear fruit into the lives of others? And I think for, for all of us, again, there's a thousand different ways we can do that. But I just want to give you one. I want to give you one that I think it would just be beneficial for all of us to take this and, and carry it with us this week. This is something I am working on in my own life. If we want to practically and tangibly love other people, we can give to others one of our most precious resources, and that is our attention. That is our attention. You want to love others well? Learn to ask good questions and then shut up and listen, right? And when whoever you're talking to is done talking, say literally anything other than, well, that reminds me of a time when I don't do that. Nobody likes it when you do that, right? I know that's true, and I catch myself doing it all the time. I'm like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. They stop talking. Well, back when I, gosh, you know. But we can give each other our attention. And some of you, some of you, you know me personally. And you might say, well, Brian, this is nice that you're telling us to do this, but you're not very good at it. I know. <laughs> I'm working on it. And the challenge is that it exposes how selfish I am. Right? But I'm telling you, you want to you wanna love others, seek to understand them. Don't crave attention, but give your attention away. Is that simple? Yeah. Real simple. Is it shallow? Nope. 
It's not. And, and if you look at the way that love is defined in the Bible, because another sort of, I think, objection we can have to all of this is say, okay, like, I get it, we're supposed to love others, but this is all a little, like, touchy-feely for me, and that's not really my personality, and I'm not, like, a grand gesture sort of person and all that, da-da-da. So, so what does this mean for me? And I would just say, look at how love is defined in the Bible. You look at the great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians, how does Paul describe love? It's not poems. It's not extravagant gestures. All those things are fine. But what does he say? He says, he says love is patient. We shall love with our patience. L- love is kind. L- love does not envy. It does not boast. It isn't arrogant or rude. See, see, the biblical definition of love is less about grand gestures and is much more about a posture of openness and humility to one another, right? And those are things we can all practice regardless of personality, Regardless of personality. Two, two, two more elements of the fruit of God's love I want to get to, and then we'll be done. When God's love does its work in us, it frees us from fear. When God's love does its work in us, the fruit of God's love in your life is freedom from fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. First John 4 says, For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And there's our word again, perfected. I just want to ask, are you living your life afraid of God? Are you afraid of punishment? Well, I think the toothpick just came out with some chocolate on it, right? Because there is no fear in love. It means God's love has not been perfected in you. If you are afraid of punishment from God, I want to take you to the foot of the cross where you can see where every ounce of punishment you or I could ever deserve was given to Jesus. So there is no punishment left for us. There is no punishment left for us. Consider that truly awesome reality that his perfect righteousness has been given to you. When God's love is perfected in you, you will understand that truth. You have no fear in judgment Because when God looks at you, if your faith is in Christ, he does not see your sinful imperfection. He sees Christ's sinless perfection. And you might say, well, Brian, well, what about verses like like Proverbs 1-7, where the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? And we hear all this stuff in the Bible about the fear of the Lord. It says all over the place we're supposed to fear God. What What do you do with that? Checkmate. No. It's a totally different concept. That when the Bible speaks of the fear of the Lord as a positive, as the beginning of knowledge, that that is, that is reverence. That is holy awe. That, that is humility. That is the recognition that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And he is, he is worthy of our allegiance and our affection and our obedience. It is, it is again, it is reverence. It is not terror. It is not terror. There is no fear in love. Some, some of you, you came from religious environments where you were motivated by fear. You, you better do this or God's gonna, or you're gonna feel guilty or, you know, whatever the case may be. I need you to know that's not from God. That your Heavenly Father does not motivate you with fear, He motivates you with love. He motivates you with love. There is no fear in love, or perfect love casts out fear. Through Christ, you have no reason to fear. And then, last thing, but it's important. Throughout this passage, we see the command to love each other. It's not optional. We can get a whole lot of other stuff right, but if we get that wrong, then all the stuff we get right doesn't really matter all that much. 
God says quite plainly that we don't love him if we don't love others. And then again, he gives us his love to fuel our love for others. And there's one other important truth that I believe you and I can hang on to. As we seek to love difficult people, as we seek to love others while we're dealing with our own stress and our own situations, how can we go about loving others with dignity and integrity? It's just one little thing that I'm trying to hang on to in my own life. Our faith teaches us that the image of God is stamped on every person. They may not see it, but it's there. And I just wonder, what if we decided as a community, that we are going to be people who seek to see the image of God in others. Just as that that quote I read you from St. John of the Cross, love what God sees in you, what if we sought also to love what God saw in others? See, so much nastiness in our world, much of which is from professing Christians, exists because we dehumanize one another. But what if we were different? What if we sought to understand what if we sought to see the image of God in others? I mean, how can I, how can I degrade a person who bears God's image? We might not think the same, and that's fine, but how can I degrade such a person? How could I belittle such a person? If I say I love God, how could I mistreat someone who bears God's image? It's in every person we see out there. What if we were people who not only loved what God saw in us, we loved what God saw in the others. And the ability to do that, it's all a fruit of God's love. The fact of God's love is displayed for us in the cross so that the fruit of God's love could be displayed in our lives. That the fact of God's love is displayed in the cross so that we might receive that love and then display the fruit of it in our lives. And if we look at our lives and we're missing the fruit, the answer is not guilt, the answer is not shame. Maybe that just means we need to be more conscious of the facts. And we need to let God's love transform us all the more. Because loving others starts with being loved. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to to come on up. And we're going to close in prayer here in just a second. And as a reminder, as as we leave, we're, we're talking about love in different ways. Certainly a way we can love practically now is the opportunity we have to, to give to, to fire relief. So, so no guilt, no manipulation, but if, if you're able, would invite you to give on your way out or, or using your mobile device and, and would sure love to see you tonight for worship, prayer, and healing night. And um, just as we close, these men and women are up here and they would absolutely love to be able to pray for you and just whatever you've got, come and see them. And in particular, maybe if you're looking at your life and you're saying, yeah, the, the fruit's not really there. Maybe you just need these men and women to pray some truth over you, to remind you of God's truth and remind you of God's love, because that's the fuel that you and I need if we're going to love the world. So let's pray. God, thank you that that is true, that you have not left us to try to motivate ourselves to love by our own strength, but that rather you have loved us well. You have loved us so incredibly well, and that you invite us to then take that love and pass it on to others. I pray that you would help us to be a community that abides in your love, that is consciously aware of your love, that, that realizes you are present and at work, and that through that we would be able to see what you love in us, and that we'd be able to see what you love in others. 
We pray, God, continue to pray for, for our brothers and sisters up north. Just ask, God, would your mercy rain down? Would you bring healing? Would you bring, bring restoration? And, God, would you allow us as a, as a church family to tangibly love them as they begin the rebuilding process? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great rest of your weekend.